1: Greetings Brexit Britain. Welcome to another edition of Romaniacs, the podcast that wants a deep and special relationship with Europe, preferably so deep and so special that we actually stay in the European (laughs) Union. I'm Dorian Linsky and this week we have something to chill the blood. Later in the show we'll be talking to data journalist Mike Hind of the Disinformation Age podcast about how fake social media profiles and astroturfing are warping the democratic conversation, how Russian troll farms and bots shape the EU referendum and the US presidential election and what you can do to fight back. As Mike will tell us, the problem isn't fake news, it's fake people. But before you load up on Brainforce Plus, the next generation of advanced neural activation, (laughs) let's say hello to our regular (laughs) co-presenters. Returning from a week on the subs bench, it's the forensically minded Hercule Poirot of Brexit, Peter Collins. Hello, Peter. Hello. For some perverse reason, you're not on social media at all, are
3: you? No, because basically I think it's all the work of Satan. Although I do actually occasionally make an exception and check out Satan's personal Twitter account. Do you know he's got one? It's at s8n. Get it. Um, and his motto, I love it, is "Sinners are winners." He's got an American accent, yeah, by the way, no, because he's not
1: actually Donald Trump. Okay, <laughs> no, at, but in real life, he's Russian. Sinners are winners. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's just. Are, a- are you missing out on the chance to uh, have an engaging conversation with at Brexit Trump Patriot seventeen seventy six? I think I can live without
2: that. Strange.
1: We can't. We're with us <laughs> as always mostly it's ian dunt editor of politics.co.uk hi and how are you hello very well as someone with a large social following
2: do you uh, do you meet a lot of fake people social media following it's social media i have yeah. almost no
1: contacts at all <laughs> yeah <laughs> but on the internet you appear <laughs> popular
2: <laughs> I have lots of friends, as long as they're virtual. Um, no, not really. I don't really... I, I was actually quite... We pre-recorded the bit that we're going to hear later on with the, with the Russian bot stuff. And I was actually... I found all of that really quite eye-opening. And I know that people talk about that on Twitter. And I don't really know. I suspect that I probably have replied and had arguments with machines without knowing it. I do have, like, a policy of, like, you only get into it if they're saying something constructive. So if they re- if they just state the premise of their argument, you know the EU is rubbish, there's no point getting into it. If it's abusive, there's no point getting into it. It's only if there's actually something constructive there to work with that you get into a tussle. And maybe that protects you from some of the bot stuff, but I I definitely don't have any kind of vigilant policy towards
1: it. I've started getting very suspicious of people where there's just a flag and kind of like a fake uh, impression of a life and then lots and lots of hashtags, like (laughs) deplorables and take back control and all that. You know, where it's just this kind of like ugly clutter... Yeah. And I th- presume that they're kind of algorithmically generated.
2: Well, the thing is that there's so much stupidity out there that it is quite difficult to differentiate some of those people from a very basic algorithm in the same way that it's quite hard to differentiate some of the satire from the real people because just there's there's a very base level of argument going out there pretty much on all sides and some of the satire is actually really quite sophisticated you see out there too so the thing that i've mostly fallen for and i've fallen for again and again and again is people doing satire where i thought that they were they were being legitimate where i had to then peevishly make an apology to just be like oh yes i see now i didn't quite get that <laughs> there's this thing called the onion i <laughs> <laughs> no, hear it's terribly clever yeah <laughs> before we get
1: started here's peter with a few gentle reminders
3: Yes, don't forget you can help us in our valuable work of chiselling away at brexit via patreon the crowd fund i always get that one wrong the crowdfunding platform pledge a small sum each month and you'll help us to develop live shows videos and more and you can get a remarkable romaniac set of gear including t-shirts mugs and bags plus a shot at early bird tickets for those live shows one of these days and this week patreon supporters will get the full unexpurgated version of our mike hind interview on digital propaganda which is coming up later as subscriber only Extra content. You can find links to our Patreon page at Romaniacs.com. Also, if you're a treacherous academic or one of their brainwashed students at what the Daily Mail calls our Remain Universities, so that makes them sound good to me, uh, you might fancy our Remain University sweatshirt in finest EU blue and yellow. It's available at romaniacs.myshopify.com, or again, you can just get there via our main webpage, romaniacs.com. It's cold out there, and it's even colder
1: outside the European Union, so wrap up war. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Peter. It's the top of the hour, and it's time for this week's Brexit news. First up, mounting evidence that even before we've left the EU, Brexit is costing us all actual money. Data from the LSE's Centre for Economic Performance shows that since the referendum, inflation in Britain has risen faster than that in the Eurozone, especially food prices. The post-referendum crash in sterling is largely to blame, and this divergence is affecting poorer households more than richer ones, because the less well-off you are, the more you spend on food. Meanwhile, the National Institute of Economic and Social Research says that the economic slowdown since the referendum has already cost every British household £600. This is because UK GDP growth for 2017 fell to 1.6% from a predicted 1.7% against a world growth rate of 3.5. And a Sussex University survey found that after a hard, no-deal Brexit, each British household would pay another £930 a year for basics, including meat, vegetables, dairy, clothing and footwear. It all points to further pressure on real wages which are already weak and this was all before interest rate Ugh. and this was all before interest rates went up last week. Peter surely the effects of the Brexit vote are starting to bite in the real economy.
3: Well who better to tell us this than the governor of the Bank of England who said in uh, Mark Carney said in a television interview on Sunday that Britain would be booming now. If it were not for Brexit, instead, we're we're kind of dragging along, you know, as you pointed out, the world economy is growing a lot quicker than the British economy. Uh, We should be doing so much better than this. Uh, And then we've got possibly worse to come. The Sussex University um, study that you mentioned, uh, basically looks at what happens. If we get a sort of no-deal Brexit where we have to revert to trading under the WTO rules, all sorts of bad things will happen. Dairy going up another 8% on top of the big rises we've already had. Meat up 6%. Oils and fats up 4%. Vegetables up 4%. Uh, Chris Grayling thinks that's all right because we'll grow our own food. But the NFU, the National Farmers Union, is already saying that already the food is rotting in the fields because it's getting harder already to find the people. And, of course, we ought to always have to mention when we do these economy bits that you know there are counter indicators there's always some indicator that points in the opposite direction so unemployment is still very low um, you know, the service sector um, seems to be picking up a bit, according to um, a, a survey this week, and that helped the stock market to pick up to a, to a record high. So you can always see something positive, And in, uh, for as long as it's not a complete and utter meltdown, if you're a pro-Brexit person and you want to be optimistic, you've got something to hang on to.
2: There are some people, I don't even know if I agree with this, there are some people that say that, that the high employment is actually kind of part of our problem, which sounds very counterintuitive, but that actually that reflects a, a sort of a jobs market where it's really easy to hire and fire. So you don't bother putting in the training for your employees, just try and train them up. It's really easy to replace them and you just think, why would I invest that kind of money in them when they can just leave and take all of that capital basically somewhere else and capital in training that actually that could be part of our problem. That usually is, is a sort of left-wing economic critique, which sort of envisages something a bit more French, you know, a little bit more German, some kind of sectoral bargaining that you could have that would allow you to have higher wages, probably, frankly, less employment, but higher productivity as well. So you never know, but it's, of course it's very, very hard to address those kind of issues because it sounds absurd to go out there and say, you know, high employment is a problem, but, but there are some people that are talking that way. And during the campaign,
1: there was um, that, the kind of specific numbers sort of backfired a bit because people became very suspicious and they go, how can you know, you know, exactly to the penny how much it's going to cost, you know, average Britons. But some of this has already happened. Um, And I mean, there is obviously a wall of denial, but I spoke to a, um, a pollster recently and he was saying that, you know, when public opinion really shifts is when they're feeling it. You know, they really are. They really are feeling it and they're getting the kind of the causality and some people obviously will deny it until their dying breath, but surely this stuff is going to, going to be sort of peeling away Brexit supporters. Yeah, and you know a phrase to pluck from the economics dictionary is money
3: illusion. At the moment, wages are on average still going up. It's just that because of higher inflation, real wages, the purchasing power of your wages, is going down. So people look at pay packets and think well it's not going down and that's a big thing that you see every month versus lots of little price rises all over the place that um you know the the things that you buy in small quantities like butter which has gone up enormously in the past past year you don't notice those immediately it's just eventually as your shopping bill just gets bigger and bigger each week you it, it'll take time to reach you
2: it's possible of course that this will start changing now. You know, the, the pound has, you know, had the devaluation that it's going to experience. And, that uh, you know, wages will keep on going up slowly and surely, and so and there will be. Unless, of course, the pound falls again, which it very well may do, you know, when you get into the kind of scenarios of thinking that no deal might become possible. And I think, you know, the, the key period then would be something like December to March, when really you might see really decisive moments in in the direction that we're taking. You could easily see another fall in the pound there. The other key variable, of course, is this has been brought up in um, the National Institute, uh, especially research, was talking about food prices. And food prices are, depending on how things go, could do some extremely unusual things over the next few years. Um, And a lot of that comes down to sort of tariffs, really, you know. So if we have some kind of no deal outcome, the first thing that would happen is you would have thought that there'd be tariffs put up against the EU. So that would mean that food prices would rise. We get loads of our food from Europe and that cost is going to be passed on to the consumer. Um, But there's an alternative, which is that the government takes the sort of Liam Fox, Daniel Hannan route, the legatum sort of route, and says, well, we'll unilaterally drop all of our tariffs. And we do it across the world. Now, the result of that would be that actually you get very, very, very cheap food in the UK because suddenly, you know, you're flooded with all this foreign goods. But there's, you know, a slight problem there, which is, of course, that you devastate your domestic industries and, you know, agriculture in this country would be completely ruined. So would that cheap food make up for the amount that we'd have to start paying and sort of job support or retraining or... You know, in public services that would be there for the people who've suddenly been made redundant. It's not clear. What is clear is that right now at this stage, even when you, if you were to narrow everything down to the no deal scenario, it's very, very unclear what's going to happen to food prices. They may be extremely volatile in the, in the years to come.
1: Because the referendum was a case of, you know, the old wisdom of it's the economy, stupid, just didn't work on that occasion. Mm-hmm. The sort of cultural factors proved more powerful. But it's not as if people have just stopped caring about the economy. Like in that moment... It was sort of overtaken as the crucial factor, but but surely people will notice and respond.
2: They will, but if they won't necessarily blame back. Brexit. I mean, I think yeah. that what we're seeing in the last general election, you know, if you were to look at where people's wages are according to inflation and look at what happens in general election, what you'll find is it's very hard to win a decisive general election victory as a government if people feel that they're getting poorer, and that is not a variable. You know, that is a constant. That's always there. But we didn't really see that you know, in the Brexit referendum. And at the moment, there's been an awful lot of misinformation which has convinced people that there is no obvious connection between those two things. I think they're more likely to punish the government in power at the time than they are to start thinking about these underlying economic forces as a result of Brexit that may have triggered it.
1: Well, don't worry, everyone. Brexiters have a new hero, and his name is Frank Field. <laughs> the monastic MP for Birkinhead, who is a Labour leaver and a proponent of the idea that Brexit will benefit the poorest people the most, has a plan to save Brexit. He wants to replace the government's 69-page European Union withdrawal bill with one containing just four clauses, a date to leave the EU, putting EU legislation and regulations on the UK statute book, allowing MPs to review these laws and regulations, and then letting the Prime Minister negotiate a post-Brexit trade deal with the EU. It's simple, so it must be right. Field is doing this because he says too many MPs are wolves in sheep's clothing. He wants to avert the Brexit process by engaging with Europe with a secret wrecking agenda. Ian, is it time for us to get Frank?
2: Look, he's always been this cretinous imbecile, and I don't accept this idea. <laughs> don't uh, hold back. I no, Well, I mean, to put it subtly, but like, I don't accept this idea that he was like this kind of, you know, challenger of left-wing myths and all of this kind of stuff. He's always just been this kind of nasty reactionary anti-immigration guy. It's like David Goodhart, the same sort of thing. It's so always praises. It's always taking on all these liberal values. You just go like, no, he just came up with progressive arguments for reactionary causes. That was all. that's ever been there. that was put very very well by various people this week i just think i I don't see any reason why we should be more generous but let's just deal specifically with the intellectual sort of value of what he contributed which you can almost i mean even only the express ran it (laughs) so you just think wow that was bad i mean you know you really are plumbing the depths when they're the only ones that are bothering to go with you so Point one is he wants a date to leave the EU. Okay, so that's completely... That's part of Article 50. I mean, so that's part of European law that there's a two-year date. We sent the Article 50 letter. Two years after that, you drop out of the EU. So he can put that... You know, of his four points so far, one of them is completely pointless. The final one is that the Prime Minister gets to negotiate a post-Brexit trade deal with the EU and you think, well, Prime Ministers can do whatever they like and they can certainly negotiate trade deals with whoever they like. So part two is completely pointless. Note the way that already... 50% of his four points are completely without any meaningful legal uh, value whatsoever. Then he's got the one that MPs get to review the laws and regulations, and that we're going to copy over the stuff to the statute book. Now that is just a description of what the withdrawal bill does. It copies over all the EU laws, and then ministers get to tinker with it however they like. It so happens that the mechanism they picked is a profoundly, I think, undemocratic one, which hands extraordinary powers to the executive. But merely restating basically the sort of The headline of the bill and then adding two completely pointless additions to it does not an intellectual contribution make. Well, Frankfield he's not a Blairite. He's not a Corbynite. He thinks everyone except
1: him is wrong. And he's basically the the spiked online of MPs (laughs) as far as I can tell. And and don't ask me why, but I was reading a, a Nigel Farage interview from three years ago the other day. And he was asked why? which Labour... <laughs> Sorry, I totally said not to ask you why. I couldn't resist it. I had, why? A, I had a pile of old magazines to sort of get through, and I was just thinking, oh, because ev- basically everything before 2015 just seems bizarre now. And you just read like <laughs> Nick Clegg going, no, I think we're going to be all right. You know, like, So it's just sort of fun. So could, you know. And anyway, he gets asked what his. Uh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's <been> a quiet <laughs> day. I mean, it's not a carnival. Um, but anyway, he gets asked who, which Labour MPs he admires. And the, the, the only one he mentions is Frank Field. And there's just this kind of idea of the kind of, the, you know, the maverick of, of the left to the point where you just go, I don't know what's left about you anymore. And like Ian says, he just seems to pander to uh, racism and his own ego. And these sort of this kind of silver bullet that he's come up with just seems to kind of. But doesn't he represent the old kind of right wing authoritarian wing of the old
3: Labour Party of like kind of the 70s and so on? Weren't there always people who, you know, realised that actually their constituents, although they were solid Labour voters and might even call themselves socialists, were actually very reactionary and sort of echoed what the, those constituents mm. said is, is he not just a relic of that
2: i just don't know if there's enough sort of intellectual content there to sort of allow him to oh represent- i didn't say there was any intellectual content <laughs> <laughs> just he, was, he was parroting the
3: reaction reviews of his
2: constituents yeah well i mean you know there's probably a certain extent to which that's true but you just sort of i mean you can do that in a certain way that actually reflects some of the concerns that there is around globalization and about sort of lack of security at work i don't really see that i just see this sort of knee-jerk populism that's basically there to sustain the position that he's secured in Parliament rather than any kind of proper contribution to what's going on around him.
1: And he said the poorest would benefit most from Brexit seeing, quote, a boost to incomes that have been heavily depressed over the last decade. How's, yeah. that, how's that working out?
2: Yeah, well, that is really fucking catastrophically stupid. Um, so, look, I mean, well, this is part of the Labour Leave thing, right? And and they have it on, on immigration as well. They, 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 they won't let go of this idea that immigration is hammering down wages. And, of course, this has been parroted by, by Jeremy Corbyn. And, and that ostensibly, it seems to intuitively make sense that you'd think like, if you increase the supply of labour, presumably you're going to see a reduction in the amount that's paid for. But what it does is it, tr- it acts as if labour is just something that is contributed and doesn't actually consume in and of itself. But in fact, people come over, they require services, you know, they'll go to a cafe, they want to rent out a property. They'll also set up businesses. In terms of when immigrants go into a, into a sector, they tend to increase the productivity because they bring ideas from outside. Now, study after study has been done into this, and most of them find that there's absolutely no effect on wages whatsoever at any level, okay? except that actually there's the, the some rise towards the, the top end. The ones that they keep on pointing to, there's, there's an old one, the Bank of England one, that, um, from way back, from a few years back, that has been referred to by Ian Duncan Smith and a few others, is showing, I, I think the author called it the most infinitesimal effect on lower wages. I think it was 0.6% of uh, over 10 years, but uh, health warning on that, I, I need to double check it. Um, and basically you you're really talking about the tiniest, tiniest change. If you look at the old um, research uh, by, the, I can't remember the institute, was it the INECR? I can't remember. Well, basically said, you know, you're going to see a much more significant drop in wages as a result of leaving the single market than you'll ever see an increase. of what's going on. There really is no decent research to show this, but they say it, and they say it, and they say it, and they say it because they know it puts pro-immigration people on the back foot of acting like they're actually against the interests of the British working class.
3: I was just looking back over that report that uh, had the stamp of labour leave and patrick minford's outfit and some other uh, um, pro-leave outfit it's just it's just quite astonishing that these people call themselves labour leave and yet to achieve these supposed welfare gains seven percent of gdp and the poor benefiting somehow you have to go for the most most scorched earth um thatcher era conservative policy that you get rid of all trade barriers as you were mentioning earlier on everything you get rid of all regulation a lot you know that you blame EU regulation for uh, hampering free trade regardless of whether it's there for a good reason like food safety and so on you get rid of all of that stuff and then you there's, a, there's no working out, of course, in this report. They tell us this produces these wonderful welfare gains. But,
1: you know, th- these are Labour people proposing all that? I Labour leave are just the most atrocious bunch. <laughs> I mean, they're just kind of, they're, they're, they're just sort of, you know, red rose UKIP, aren't they? It's like, just, there seems to be, I don't know where the Labour is. It, there, it is like those kind of spiked style columnists, that all of their critiques on the left are predicated on the idea that they themselves are left-wing, but they're the truth-telling left-wing. And then you look through what they're saying and they never, ever, ever say anything left-wing. Mm. And this seems to be sort of like with, with Labour Leave, you know, if you look at what, what they put out on their Twitter account, it, I
2: don't understand where the Labour is in there. Yeah, it's so completely bizarre. It's, it's, you're so right. To, to, you know, to, to associate even remotely with Minf- I mean, the idea... If you unilaterally reduce your Just imagine what that does to your fucking manufacturing. To domestic manufacturing... It, it, Or imagine what that does to people in Port Talbot or something. If you work in British steel, we can go on to the WTO arrangement. Now, our security against the Chinese dumping of steel in this country is based on an agreement that we have via the EU. Now, we don't have any trade remedy organizations that are going to fight that battle for us. If we go straight onto WTO rules, the Chinese are absolutely going to make a claim against that. And we don't really have the, the infrastructure in order to counter that sort of thing. So fine, you can still make the case if you really believe we need to leave the single market. God knows how you would have possibly reached that conclusion from a left wing perspective, but fine. But you at least need to be cognizant of these things and think this is how we're going to prepare for it and deal with it. Instead, what we get is this back of a fag packet bullshit that they produce and then going out and saying, well, look, we the real protectors of the British working class. So he's done absolutely nothing to demonstrate that whatsoever. And frankly, they should be held in contempt. Right, I've worked myself <laughs> up into a proper fury now. That's arseholes.
1: <laughs> right, finally. another
2: <In> impartial <laughs> news.
1: <laughs> uh, in our news bit, are you wearing your poppy? And if not, why not? Put it on, now. It's Remembrance Week, which not only means a large part of the population showing their respect for Britain's war dead, it also means the poppy police are out on patrol, Demanding to know why children's television presenters, singers and animated cartoon characters aren't wearing a poppy. Plus the inevitable think pieces about whether we should wear a poppy, why young people don't want to wear a poppy and even tweets about why (laughs) wearing a poppy should be made compulsory. Brexit, patriotism and the Second World War have all become conflated into a horrible culture war in which loudmouths use the victims of an actual war, in which they did not fight, to diminish their opponents. Peter who has who been caught out by the poppy police this year and what does it tell us?
3: Well this year's uh, among this year's victims of poppy fascism uh, so far include Nicole Scherzinger who's apparently a judge on the pr- a programme called The X Factor is apparently on the television which I've never watched <laughs> and the West Brom <laughs> footballer James McLean who is said to be from the same housing estate in Derry where many of the victims of Bloody Sunday came from so perhaps not hugely surprising that he's a bit reluctant to wear a symbol so closely associated with the British mm. army. So but for me, the, the final straw has been a story I saw, strangely enough, in the Blackpool Gazette, uh, which said that somebody associated with the Royal British Legion branch in Cleaverleys uh, briefly posted on Facebook a naming and shaming list of all the shops that it, this person claimed had refused to take a poppy collecting tin. In some cases, that was not true. The shops pointed out that this, they hadn't refused. But for me, the point is that this I didn't see any... I looked at their... It was taken down, but I didn't see on their web page... Any apology for this kind of vicious bullying um, activity—that you know you've got to do it, otherwise you'll name and shame. You. So for me, no poppies anymore. I told myself last year: if poppy fascism doesn't go away, and if the Royal British Legion doesn't do something effective about it—which they haven't—I um, will not wear a poppy, and I'm not. And, and it's, there are lots of other charities. There are, you know, it's a good cause. Uh, People—it's actually mostly people who fought in Afghanistan and Iraq who, who are helped, and they only get fifty percent of the proceeds. By the way, if you look at the Royal British Legion's web page, but there are other causes. There's the homeless. There's the, the poor in general. Uh, you know, that uh, why should why should we have
1: be forced to p- contribute to a particular charity? Hmm. Well- some twenty nine percent of people in a uh, recent poll believe that wearing a poppy should be compulsory because, of course, if we've fought for everything, anything, it's uh, right—the yeah. right to be told what to do <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and to wear certain things like uniforms. Indeed, I mean, it's—it's it's just. I mean, like, this is this has been going on for quite some time, and I suppose there's this there's this uh, the idea that obviously Brexit has not created as much as sort of. Illuminated and magnified this divide that was going on anyway. And so it's sort of this year, and I, I suppose I must have felt it a bit last year, it just feels so Brexity. That, you know, that's sort of like an adjective that's been applied to this sort of side of, of Britain that's been there for a long time.
3: And I, don't, I may have seen the piece, a very good piece in The Independent by a guy called Otto English, um, perfect name for it, uh, arguing that it's time to get rid of the poppy campaign and pointing out that there's this growing male English Obsession uh, with the two world wars, constantly harping on about them. People who are too young, as you say, to fight in the wars, constantly seeing TV dramas set in the war. We're hearing this, you know, we survived the war, we can survive Brexit as if there's any equivalence between them. Um, keep calm and carry on, Applied to the most trivial things as if it's, you know, we're suffering like we did uh, in the Blitz, even though we're too young to have suffered in the Blitz. Europe, politicians who try to be at all reasonable and negotiate with the EU are called Quislings and appeasers, again, as, the, as though it's Hitler out there. It just goes on and on and on. The, I don't know if you also saw The Independent pr- printed a response from the head of a... A think tank called British Future, uh, arguing against um, dropping the poppy and saying it was ridiculous. But he rests on the claim that it's voluntary. Well, that's the point. It's stopped being voluntary it isn't voluntary that's why it's not no longer appropriate is that
2: syndicat waller i suppose mm? that was that would have written that piece was british if it's british future or british influence I always get confused between the two no it's he, somebody else it is somebody else okay I, like it, it, I mean that there was an a, there was an attempt to try it i mean syndicat waller's group whichever one that is british influence british future i was british future i think british uh, actually tried to sort of reappropriate that kind of stuff by putting the poppy on hijabs and was trying to make some you know actually get some stories into the daily mail the daily express about, you know, actually look at how many Muslim soldiers, you know, fought for Britain and two world wars, blah, blah, And of course the response in the mail was, we demand Muslims wear the, the poppy hijab, you know, and off we go. <laughs> and it's very hard to get in that debate without it turning into this uh, best finger wagging and at worst, you know, more, even more draconian. Well, play.
1: you often uh, slum it on television programmes.
2: Would, uh, <laughs> would, you, would you be able to get away with not wearing a poppy, you know? Yeah, yeah but- I do. it all th- I mean, so they always come in and offer you one. So, I mean, last week at Sky, like, they'll pop in and sort of go like, do, do, would you, would either of you like a poppy? To which my, my answer is no, I don't want one. And actually, to be fair, Claire Fox, who's actually sort of connected to the Spike people that mm. we were talking about before, had, had who I was with, said exactly the same thing. Um... I've also actually done a couple of things on telly sort of saying why I won't wear a poppy anymore. I I did used to wear it and sort of about three or four years ago it started getting to me this sort of weird cultural pressure around it and the idea that because it is ultimately a political symbol of some sort even if it is one that sort of broadly most people would agree with and the push to have a political symbol on your body you know to be represented in that way it seems to me quite pernicious and and quite sort of dangerous. I did have a. I stopped doing. I stopped doing any TV or radio about the poppy, by the way, because I went for like lunch with my mum one day. It's like a Saturday. She's like, "What have you done this week?" And I was like, uh, "Well, I went on radio to say that you know people shouldn't wear the poppy, and then I did another thing saying that it was all right to smoke in the car with children." <laughs> and My mum <laughs> was literally just like, "What? What did I do wrong?" Like, you know, I thought, you know, okay, fine. And it's a bit off, and it was turning into sort of like a seasonal thing, but I. I think more and more people are getting uncomfortable with it. And there is a, a sadness there, obviously, because you know, the stuff that we're core talking about is something that we should be able to unite around. But we are lost in that culture war now. And I understand why people feel that it's not a comfortable thing. It's not, a, it's not easy to wear that thing anymore. And I, I certainly I feel the same way myself. So, I mean, are there alternative poppy? I mean, obviously, there's a the white poppy thing that's been around for years. Could you,
1: could you wear, you know, EU flag poppies? Could you wear the bleu de France? Like, are there ways of, uh, you know, making some kind
2: of statement, sort of not abandoning the kind of remembering the dead aspect? You can combine it, but also you don't need to do that. I mean, if you're comfortable wearing the poppy, then that's good for you. I mean, it's not like it's it's not like it's a negative thing to to do it, and no one should be con- absolutely, of course, should not be condemned for wanting to wear the poppy. And lots of sort of people that I know, friends that I have, especially people who are very firmly on sort of the general open society, liberal end of things, still feel very confident about wearing it. And still, most importantly, feel it's almost like, you know, the, the old English flag thing. You don't let these guys take that symbol, not least yeah. because the symbol is so powerful that you can't just give it up. Well, that's
1: open. why I've, I've sort of, you know, often worn one. It's not sort of, I don't think it's a mandatory thing, but I've, I've I felt loath to sort of give up on it because you just think, well, why should it be sort of soiled? Yeah, fair. Plus there is a lot of good merch. This year. I don't know if you've seen one of the stands, but they get the rulers, the kind of bendy rulers that you slap on your wrist, and they come around like kind of like Wonder Woman's gauntlets. Huh. Um, so I force my girls to wear those <laughs> to remember our brave boys.
3: But the point I to make here, just in case there's anybody who's hard of thinking who hasn't followed this so far, we are not saying. That people shouldn't wear the poppy. What we're objecting to is people telling us we have to. That is a completely and utterly different thing. And just to, to add to what we've already been saying, I think it would be helpful if we found some way of separating the two things. One is the symbolism of remembering the dead, remember the, remembering the sacrifice, and the other is the fundraising for a, an ex services welfare fund that goes on is part of the, the money that uh, the poppy fund raises. I think it would help if we separated those two.
2: I feel I'm, I'm sort of almost patriotic about the sort of that classic British "fuck you" instinct, which is you to the sort of thing of like. I mean, so even if you t- this this is a bit tenuous, but like if you go all the way back to the to the Churchill thing, Churchill never sort of really opposed Nazism because he thought it was some tremendously distant political view. And people go out there and say Churchill was really quite sickeningly right wing and authoritarian. He was not, not wrong. anti was he? Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly, yeah. He opposed fascism because of, I think I mean, this is almost stereotypical, because of a particular view of what England is. And that kind of instinctive fuck you ness, which would have been there, you know, those early points with, when Hitler was baffled as to why Britain wouldn't just get on board with the whole project, to me seems completely applicable to the discomfort that some of us feel now with the poppy. It's sort of thinking like, well, I mean, I would, but if you're telling me that I've got to, then no, fuck you.
1: And I'd spoke to someone recently whose mother was, I think, around, around 100, had lived through the war. Um, and she voted to remain because she was like, well, she felt that the EU had prevented further wars. Mm. So the idea that this proves kind of the value, you know, the, the way it's embraced almost a symbol of kind of British exceptionalism and almost sort of isolationism. And it's like, there's not a lot of joined up thinking going on there. Evergreen point from a <laughs> <laughs> They're not that bright. <laughs> That's quite enough news for now. Where a poppy? <laughs> if you came to Romaniacs through social media, you'll know what a mess it can be out there. With fake news, automated bots, and orchestrated Twitter pylons, all designed to distort debate and create false impressions of what voters think. And behind all that, the truly worrying prospect of dark money and Russian interference in Western democracy. Who can you trust, and how should you react when you see obvious lies and propaganda in your social feeds? Mike Hind is an investigative journalist and data expert who writes for the New European and co presents the Disinformation Age podcast. And he came into the Romaniac studio to tell us all about it. Take your BrainForce Plus tablets now, without crashes or jitters. <laughs> Social media was the Brexit battleground during the referendum, and it still is, with thousands of highly partisan tweets being churned out every day. But how can you tell if at BrexitWarrior5248 or at Make Brussels Great Again are real people, propaganda bots, or even worse, undercover trolls trying to make your own side look bad? Research by Dr. Marco Bastos and Dr. Dan Mercier from City University of London indicates that some 13,000 Twitter bot accounts posted 65,000 pro-Brexit messages before the referendum, then mysteriously disappeared right afterwards. They said, We didn't find evidence that bots helped spread fake news. Instead, they were invested in feeding and echoing user-curated, hyper-partisan and polarising information. And in October, Leave.eu's former head of communications, Andy Wigmore, denied that the bots were connected to Russia, but admitted that we had our own bots in Bristol and we used AI to target specific groups. Facebook has just admitted that 126 million people were served content from Russian-linked pages, which will have involved bots in some capacity. It's clear that bots and fake users are being employed to create a fake impression of the public mood. With us, we have Mike Hind, investigative journalist, contributor to The New European, and presenter of the Disinformation Age podcast to explain what's happening with bots, fake news, and online propaganda. Hi, Mike. Thanks for coming in. Hello. You're welcome. Firstly, what exactly is a bot?
0: A bot is an entirely automated account on a social media platform. It's a script, if you like, which a human has programmed to... Tweet or maybe Facebook post a certain type of content. It may be something that is designed to share all of the posts mentioning a certain word, or in the case of some particularly advanced ones, a really nice, sophisticated piece of artificial intelligence which can actually converse uh, with people. That's where you'll come across the term... Chatbots, which uh, aren't unusual in the world now, lots of brands, lots of companies are developing chatbots. I was involved recently in a, an online conference called Bot Camp, where all of the developers of bots uh, of all kinds got together to share their in, to share their experience and their intelligence, uh, and it was fascinating what you learned from that and they were launching chat bots that you could sign up to chat with and test and see whether or not they came across as as plausible people. So, yeah, that's what a bot is. It's a non-human interlocutor online that's designed to look like a person.
2: And in a way, they're kind of passing the Turing test. In a sense, so some people are talking to these things and they're not thinking that they're machines.
0: Some of them do, and there are some really delightful uh, stories if you if you want to google these you'll probably find them. You might find them on YouTube as well, where bots are chatting with other bots oh, wow. and going round and round in circles. A blade runner. There's a lovely one on Twitter called Lizzie. Her handle is at Argutron. And she has another handle, which is also... I'm sure I've met
2: Argutron. <laughs>
0: There's tron There's another Lizzie called Arguertron. tron I think, because either or both keep getting banned by Twitter. And if you go on her timeline, you'll find that every now and then she'll have really long-running arguments with people, either really stupid people or possibly other bots. Hmm. So bots are only the tip of the iceberg... And everyone's what? fascinated by bots because bots are the big thing.
1: Well, what's the political, the sort of pernicious political influence of bots? Is the idea to, to change minds or is it just to create this kind of white noise of, you know, of a certain size? if you look under like replies to a, a Trump tweet, for example, there just seems like it, no argument is being put forward. Yeah. It's just kind of like, maga, blah. Yeah. Is, is that kind of the, like, how sophisticated is their intent The people programming them. Just to
0: position this, I was one of the hapless. uh, I was a Remainer. I was one of those hapless Remainers during the uh, during the EU referendum, who attempted to debate uh, online, and ended up realizing that what my detractors, the people who were arguing to leave, weren't trying to do at all was persuade me of anything. And I think that's number one misconception, is that bots or shills, that's professionals, people who are sitting there operating maybe 10 or 20 or 30 social media accounts, a a misconception is that they're there to persuade you. No, they're not. What you need to understand about the purpose of bots and all of the noise that they create is a, a, a term which is astroturfing. And the way I explain astroturfing is, let's say you're standing in a landscape and you're looking around you and you can see there's some rocks, there's some flowers and there's some hills and there's a kind of variegated landscape there. And you can see that that's a complex landscape. Let's say you're passing by on a train and somebody has literally laid a load of astroturf all over over that, as a passerby you just see a uniform green landscape and that is the purpose, one of the purposes of astroturfing. It is to hook people in who aren't perhaps as uh, sophisticated as the likes of Ian uh, in uh, terrible example, by the way. But... <laughs> in, in understanding what's going on in the political landscape, they will start to they will start to think, "Oh, this is the social consensus around this issue."
1: Oh <laughs> <Well>, my scotch
2: <laughs> I really like this idea. I just think you should be excluded from all points about rational assessments of yeah. the news. <laughs> Mike, con- continue. If you're <laughs>
0: <in>. <laughs> so you've got your group of people, which is the majority of people, it's, it's going to be over 90% of people who aren't heavily engaged with politics, but they're noticing what's going on. Astroturfing is designed to make it look as if there's a social consensus, it's the faking of a social consensus. The second point is who's on Twitter who's smart and influential? Journalists and policymakers. And what astroturfing is also about is persuading policymakers and journalists that there is an issue that they should be covering. Here's a great example of astroturfing actually working. And I heard it this morning. William Hague on the Today programme saying, Yes, but what would happen if we cancelled Brexit? how many times have we heard on twitter that there would be blood on the streets there would be civil mm-hmm. unrest if we cancel if brexit was cancelled i think that's bullshit but i think that that message which is constantly promulgated is designed to be reported by journalists and it's designed to be seen by the likes of william hague who now thinks that there would be serious civil unrest if brexit wasn't carried through. So those are the two principal purposes behind bots and paid shills constantly
2: making noise around a certain issue. And who do we think is, is paying for these guys? Who's, who's setting them up?
0: That's the, well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? We know that we know that Lee, V, U said and then unsaid that they did it. Because Andy Wigmore tweeted the week before last we had our own bots in Bristol. I think you said this in mm. the intro. And and then he deleted that tweet. But there's no reason, I haven't read I haven't read The Bad Boys of Brexit yet. I actually downloaded it to my Kindle yesterday. This I, is Aaron Banks' book on the yeah, Brexit campaign. Yeah. I really want to read what he says about what they did with their digital operation. But I suspect that Levy you did. Certainly, if I'd been them, I would have done. Vote Leave say they didn't, but we do know, of course, about the famous Russian Internet Research Agency in St Petersburg. We know that that happens. But I've seen lots of reports and seen people interviewed who claim to have worked in what you call troll farms in places like Ohio. So the short answer is we don't really know. We've seen footage on YouTube of the Internet Research Agency, but it's an incredibly shadowy shadowy world, and that's one of the reasons why it's a concern.
1: Well, how can you tell um, if you're dealing with a bot or indeed a paid troll? I mean, it seems to me that there are certain sort of giveaways. It used to be in the, in the days of the egg, the Twitter egg. Hmm. Often if you had a Twitter egg whose username had lots of numbers in it, I thought, this is probably not legit. And they only tweeted about one thing. But presumably they're not all that stupid and blunt so what you know what what kind of what sort of giveaways are there which can basically save you a lot of pointless arguing i think they uh, it's interesting
0: because i'm asked every day how do we spot a bot and actually normally
1: not as well as that i'd like to
0: turn (laughs) i'd like to turn this around uh and 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 say don't focus too much on whether something's a bot or not and just look at the content and see whether or not you think the content is legitimate. It isn't that difficult to spot either a bot or a semi-automated account, which is automatically tweeting some stuff and is taken over by a human at certain points. But giveaways, uh, random string of characters or numbers in the name, that's a a bit of a giveaway because not much thought has gone into creating that account. And if you're in the business of bulk creating accounts then you're just going to have to have whatever f- whatever hasn't already been taken on Twitter so that will account for some of those accounts certainly anonymity is is a real giveaway that doesn't mean all the anonymous people on Twitter are bots but if you are sketchy in any kind of way then you're not going to be your real self uh, on the twitter uh, the third giveaway is the one you just mentioned, which is single-issue tweeting. Um, if you're not, if if people aren't tweeting anything ever off-topic, if they're a Remainer or a Brexiter or a Trumpkin, and that's all they ever talk about, well, there's a good chance there that that's not really a legit account. And uh, and another another giveaway is mostly retweets, mostly sharing other posts, and little or no of what you call self-authored content. So those are some of the ways to to spot bots. But I'm more keen and and bang on at length about what you do about those uh, because one of the issues there is by engaging with those accounts, you push them up through the Twitter algorithm rankings. The more responses they get, the more likely they are to be suggested to other users as, a, as an account to follow, and the more likely they are to appear in front of uh, in front of more people. And therefore, my advice is always, if you don't think that's a legitimate person, just disengage from it and, if necessary,
1: block it. And are Twitter uh, and Facebook doing enough to sort of fight this? And because of, presumably, the volume without a lot of effort, the volume of these, these sort of, you know, bots, but also kind of just sort of, you know, paid trolls or whatever, is there, what can they do about it? Or do they, will they just keep on coming?
0: A couple of points here. Um, first of all, I want to give a shout-out to Twitter uh, in particular because Twitter are getting a, a really bad rap at the moment, as are Facebook, but let me just point out One of the reasons that Twitter is getting such a bad rap is because it's relatively transparent. So uh, Twitter will make their uh, API, which is the, if you want to picture it, if you're non-technical, the pipe into all of their information. They make that available to academics and and other people who want to be able to see into the guts, into the bowels of Twitter and see what's going on. Uh, Facebook don't do that. And that is a real issue. So Facebook is the black hole. Facebook is the place that you really can't see into and you don't know really what's going on in there. Twitter clearly has a problem. It's partly born of the fact that it has a policy which allows an anonymity and it allows multiple accounts. But I I do want to speak in, in defence of, of, of Twitter on that because I think... Twitter have provided more useful data in the growing story about disinformation on social media than have Facebook.
1: We talked uh, last week about um, Orwell, and I think one of the things that sort of that I find quite s- sort of scary about about this is that is this kind of this sort of bl- blurring of the real and the fake, and this is, this has been a kind of strategy. Um, in Russia, for a sort of actually for a very long time, there's a long tradition there. No, but the book "Nothing Is True and Everything Is Permitted" is this kind of really terrifying look into the way that fake news and that whole idea is actually is is a huge part of kind of Putin's power in Russia, and it sort of it, it, it you know extends here and it seems to be happening more and more. Yeah, where you just do not know sort of who you're dealing with. You don't know what the sources are. I'll see I'll see people constantly you know retweeting kind of news from these sort of dubious sites. Is this part of a greater crisis of of sort of authenticity and reliability, that this is just one front in this war on kind of knowing where you stand and knowing who you can legitimately argue with. Because I'm fairly... I used to be fairly straightforward in this respect. It's just like, ah, here's someone on Twitter who's arguing with me. They're a real person. Yeah, I did too. And they go, oh, no, they're not. Or, like, trying to convince friends that, that, you know, they go, well, this website, this news story is on this website. And you're just going, no, but the entire framework of this website is false. They didn't mess up and post a false story. The entire thing is designed to fool you. Yeah. And it works. And that just seems something that you you know that you can't just get the tech companies to fight back.
0: Yeah, a shout out now for one of my favourite uh, documentaries, which was uh, Adam Curtis' Hypernormalization. Have either of you seen that? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that's a must. But that's the phenomenon that you're describing. It's create a big enough smokescreen, make the water muddy enough, nobody can decide what's true or not, and therefore everyone disengages, and then. If you're in power, you just get on with whatever you want. Um, So there's an element of that, I have no doubt.
2: Yeah, you shared a story recently that Remainers had... um sort of drop the saboteur any, enemy of the people rhetoric and all that. <laughs> should we um that's like 50% of our material. That is basically all we ever do. So uh, yeah. should, should we so, change the name of the podcast or cuz we actually feel like that's a pretty good brand for us now. We'd be highly resistant oh towards my this God, argument.
0: You've dropped, you've dropped that on me. <laughs> it's not bad.
1: it's like it's like asking al Murray not to, you know, not to be the pub landlord anymore. It's
2: like come on. <laughs> it's uh, a that, that, that is a it's it's extremely it... generous to us the comparison that you just made. <laughs> do you
0: know I was actually thinking about that as a war to to the studio <laughs> oh, no. today and I was trying to I was trying to work out whether or, whether or not I'm okay with the Romaniacs thing I really liked it at first uh, thinking one of the things that you do in this new world of hyper partisan division is you kind of co-opt the other side's insults and wear them and own them and that's why so many people became you know apt John Smith saboteur, or the deplorables,
2: of course, in the US on the other side. They they invented it. Hmm.
0: Those people. And when you look at today, now that the electoral commission, uh, it's been announced that the electoral commission is is investigating the the money that Aaron Banks donated through Better for the Country, um, you know, to 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 help create Brexit. if you look at his and Andy Wigmore's Twitter accounts, they are really owning all of the allegations in that way. They're sharing them all. They're saying... They're, they're using the terminology, you know, sort of Russian spy. They're hashtagging it. Mm. So I think it's wearing a bit thin, if I'm honest. Mm, and uh, But I, I quite like Romaniacs because it's fun, and this is quite a fun podcast. But you really did put me on the spot. I hadn't. <laughs> I didn't come. I didn't come with my with my PR hat on. Uh, no, it's
1: just like we heard you were talking about us behind our back, and we just wanted to like call you out. <laughs> 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 no, I think it's a fair. I think it's a fair point. Not so much about the name of the podcast, but but that whole kind of ah, saboteurs and the people, and you, and you you want to make sure that that it's kind of. Working, You know, that something might seem sort of funny to you, but what you don't want is for something like that to to sort of backfire.
2: A lot of this is also surely about who you're talking to. You know, Mm. I mean, if at the point where you're, you're actually having the debate with another side and trying to convince someone of a position, you're not going to do this thing where you adopt the abuse directed towards you by the other side. Yeah. In terms of what the proposition is of this website, this is obviously a place for us to sort of, you know, take stock and and sort of make each other laugh and try to recharge before you go out there and have the debates again. So in that kind of context, you're more likely to sort of co-op these sort of words. That's my formal defense. It it does work in the sense that "Remaniacs" is an insult.
0: And if you call the podcast "Remaniacs," then you are pretty much immune to that as an insult because you're just cocking a snooker. uh, At your detractors, so don't think it's uh, probably a very wise idea to change the name of it now. And and, uh, and what name would you? What name would you use? You know, it's more sensible if we cancel Brexit.
2: (laughs) It's not working. Conversations about tariff rate rate quotas would be. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Finally, can you recommend something, or more than one thing, that would uh, that would be good to know when you're venturing out, and perhaps even considering having a, a convivial debate with with a sort of political opponent what sort of just sort of what should people bear in mind when they are out there
0: i'm going to completely swerve around that question and stick to the uh, advice that i would give people online because that's where i'm most interested in getting around the problem of disinformation and it's a tip that i heard last week at misinfocom which was a really fascinating conference and it is if you see a headline or a meme, or a, or a piece of content that creates an emotional, an instant emotional response in you. You are being manipulated. Take a breath. Don't share it. Maybe come back to it later.
1: Yeah, I can think of a few websites whose business model would be completely destroyed if everyone followed that advice. <laughs> and
0: most, good. Most of that world would sink without trace if it wasn't shared, and that is why that's a really important piece of advice.
1: That's brilliant. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks for coming in.
0: You're welcome. Thanks.
1: And you're back in the room. That's the end of our show. Don't forget, if you'd like the full version of that interview, why not become a Patreon backer of Romaniacs? Full details at Romaniacs.com. Thanks to Mike for coming in, and as ever, to Peter Collins and Ian Dunt. Peter, have we convinced you to join social media now? It's great. Strangely enough, I'm
3: now quite warming to the idea of banning social media (laughs) altogether.
0: (laughs) Indeed,
1: yes. Doesn't do them any harm, does it? (laughs) And then next week, we'll have you on there tweeting pictures of poppies. We're very persuasive. And here's Ian with this week's Reason to be Cheerful.
2: (laughs) I don't always have one. Um, Albion is a play at the Almeida Theatre, which you may still be able to see. And I think there's a pretty good chance it might get a West End sort of transfer. And it's the first play that I've seen that actually was dealing with Brexity stuff. There's possibly a couple of bits you could sort of bicker about. But ultimately, this is like a play that really actually is invested in the country and sort of like is reflecting all of that churn of ideas, especially like ideas around English sentimentality and the landscape and just sort of your relationship with the soil. And then what happens when you open things out? It's like a a genuinely kind play where even the characters that are quite sort of empty and dangerous actually turn out to have qualities that, that... you know, that actually make you see a a fully-sided view of them. I I really, really liked it. But most importantly, I was just so relieved to finally see some kind of art properly reflect the stuff that was going on around me. So finally, we've discussed it many, many times on this program of when will people start talking about this stuff in movies and in TV and basically outside of stand-up. And this was one of the first times he would seen it happening. So it's um Albion, and it's at the Almeida Theatre. Because it's a really good time for political theatre. Like some of the big hits at the moment, the sort of Oslo
1: Inc. Mm. Labour Lovers just opened. Is this sort of is this political theatre, or is it more this ab, is you know it, like thematic?
2: There's a couple of moments where I was worried that people are sort of turning into metaphors, and that doesn't work for me at all. But this is it's one of those things where you're not dealing. I don't think they actually they do mention Brexit explicitly a couple of times but you're just digging into what's going on in like the guts of a country, you know, and you try to find a story that allows you to talk about it. So you you could, I mean, you could go to this thing and you could see a play that is basically just about a woman having a sentimental relationship with her garden and trying to quit her big city job to do that. And if you want to take it at that level, it's fine. But you'd be hard pushed, especially given the title of the thing to, to take such a superficial analysis of it. And clearly this is a play that is haunted by what's sort of going on around us it was just it was an absolute pleasure to watch where's it on uh the almeida theater lovely in north london who would have thought
1: before we finish a quick announcement we're going to do another ask romaniacs next week so if you've got questions about brexit and all its works for the panel tweet them to us with the hashtag #AskRomaniacs. we are at RomaniacsCast, cast of course and ian and i are also on twitter because we're modern <laughs> <laughs> We're going to play out with Demon is a Monster, our lovely theme tune by Corner Shop, and the traditional roll call of some of our Patreon backers. If you want to shout out yourself, plus Romaniacs, mugs, bags, and T-shirts, then visit our Patreon page via Romaniacs.com and pledge us whatever you like. We'll be very grateful. And to see us off, here's a bit of Italian from listener Adam Steinert. We'll see you next week. fede e difendete l'Europa.
3: Thanks on behalf of Romaniacs to James Christopher Ella, Morn. Angela Boyle Keith Douglas Tom Clark Judith Poser Michael Bryan Ayo
2: Adebiyi Richard Teversham and Matthias Berchtold. And it's thanks from me to Simon Gladding Greg Sadler Steve Feldman Sean Hollyhane Ryan Stuart Taylor Jez Wiles Rupert Topman Diane Lee and Kerry
1: Evans And finally for me many thanks to David McCallum Ilya Kuryakin himself <laughs> Jepty dead Marianne Lagrue, Julian Woodward Tom Harris Susan Stewart Robert Shirkley Henry Yates Ben Capper Mark Howson, and Laura Groves If we haven't read your name out yet don't worry more next week See you then
0: Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Peter Collins and Ian Dunn The producers were Andrew Harrison and me Matt Hall Romaniacs is a Podmasters
1: production